Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who have shaped us, out now in paperback. Firstly, a little reminder about our listener bonus, the podcast newsletter, Further Reading. If you love reading and writing, expect essays inspired by books I've loved. Imagine something between the LRB and the Beano as well as book reviews, bonus episodes and special treats for subscribers. At the moment, it's completely free. In the future, you'll have the chance to purchase a premium subscription, which will give you access to the book club, a creative career clinic, special events and giveaways. You can find out more at furtherreading.substack.com. Now, on to our episode. For the grand finale of Your Booked USA, we're in uh, Bloomsbury. By way of Chile, Venezuela and Marin County, our guest is truly global. She lives in California and she was made a US citizen in 1993. She's been inducted into the US Academy of Arts and Letters. She's received a Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. We are so proud to share this very special episode with you. To celebrate her brilliant new book, A Long Petal of the Sea, here is Isabel Allende. We talked about passion, polygamy and the thrill of locking yourself in the closet with a dirty book. For Isabel, it was Arabian Nights. Enjoy. Growing up, can you remember the first book that made you very excited about the idea of reading and writing and telling stories? When I was growing up uh, in the house of my grandparents, there were no special books for kids. But it was a house full of books. And somehow I... um, stumble upon a book of uh, fairy tales from the north. So everything was covered in snow and ice and it was all blue and white. And I remember that book dearly. It must have been such a a thrilling, strange world. Yeah, I remember that book. And then uh, as I started reading very young because there was nothing else to do. There was no TV, there was no cinema and just reading. Um, and I had only brothers. I was like an only child in a way, the only girl in the house. So I read a lot, and I read um, young adult books when I should have been reading fairy tales. <laughs> oh, I love those books, though, where you know a bit of you knows that you possibly shouldn't be reading them yet. I think that makes them much more thrilling. Uh, can you remember any particular titles? of those books that you were reading, the young adults. Not, adult not so young, because uh, I don't remember uh, reading uh, in hiding at that age. But a little later, when I was around 12 or 13, 
I was living with my stepfather and my family in Lebanon, where um, my life was just going to school and home. There was no social life of any kind. To give you an idea, I heard about Elvis Presley when he was already fat. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I had no idea what was going on in the world for people my age. And um, my stepfather had a closet which was always locked. And there he kept his treasures, cigarettes, whiskey, chocolates, Playboy, and um, four mysterious books, uh, leather-bound, red covers, beautiful books. And uh, while my brothers would drink the whiskey and smoke the cigarettes, I would go in with a flashlight and read the books. And it was Arabian Nights. Oh, wow. That it was supposed to be erotic, so it was forbidden for my age or for me. But of course, I was interested. And uh, I couldn't mark the books, so I had to look for the dirty parts and skip skip whole stories. And then the stories would get all mixed up, which didn't matter really, because everything connected in one way or another. I think that gave me the <laughs> the addiction to storytelling, to eroticism, to fantasy, all that magic of those books. Because I think there's so much in there that's about desire, isn't it, and yearning. I think that's often where true eroticism comes from. And I suppose there was a double layer of it because there was yearning in the books and you were yearning to get in the closet. Yes, and, and the fact that it was forbidden it make it much more interesting. I always say that if you want to have a, a kid reading, forbid the books and they will read. Um, so I read those books, and I don't remember any of the stories because they were all mixed up. I, I, I created the story, recreated mm. the stories. Was it a special sort of, you know, saucy version of the Arabian Nights, or was it just the, the, the text? Version. It, was it, was the, the it was the original but. version. So it, the, it was saucy, but f uh, everything was metaphorically. Mm. So I didn't know the basics. I didn't know what an erection was. So it, all this met metaphor about it, I didn't understand very well what it was, but I did know that I shouldn't be reading it. I think that so often those ideas come, and I think in lots of ways they're a lot more powerful when you're not entirely sure what they mean and you're free to interpret them in your own way. Well, in a way, that's what I do with my writing. Um, if I am, for example, describing a brutal scene of torture, I don't go into the details. I let the imagination of the, the reader complete the the story. The same with eroticism. There's no need to say who puts what where. You can you can suggest it, and it's much more e efficient, I think. I love that you mentioned Arabian Nights because of the magic in it as well. And yes. I think that so many of your readers love that magic realism, the sense that you create a world where so much is possible beyond what is logical. Yes, but there's a difference between the fantasy of Arabian Nights and magic realism from Latin America or from Africa or from Asia. Um, I think that fantasy is something that you would never see in real life. Uh, let's say, the invisibility cloak of Harry Potter. You've never seen it, and you never will. But you can talk about the invisible Indians in the Amazon, and they do exist, mm. and there is an explanation. They uh, paint their bodies in the colors of nature and move so swiftly in the forest that you don't see them, and that's why they are invisible. So that would be magic realism. Um, and I come from, from a place, and most of the world is like this, where we know 
that there are so many things we don't understand, we can't explain, we can't control. The world is a very mysterious place. I think you're absolutely right, and I think there's lots of comfort and inspiration to be found in literature that honours that mystery rather than necessarily trying to explain in a very literal way. Do you mostly read in Spanish or in English or, or a combination? I read in English because I live in the United States. I've been living there for more than 30 years. So most of my reading is in English and I'm addicted to stories. So I read books. I read in my Kindle when I travel and I travel a lot. And I have audiobooks in the car. So half of my reading is somebody telling me the story, which I love. I love the audiobooks. Um, when I travel to Spain or to Chile, I get books in Spanish. But mostly I read in English. But I write in Spanish. Uh, which audiobooks have you been listening to lately? The latest one, I think it was one by Tahni Hesi Coates called The Water Dance. And um, it's a beautiful book, read beautiful by an African-American actor who has a beautiful, deep voice. For shame, I've not read that book, but I would love to. That's um, a book with magic realism. It's the story of, the, of, of slaves, runaway slaves in uh, Virginia and um, at the time of, of slavery, right before the Civil War. And... Um, there are many elements that, that are African myths and um, stories that are magical. What's the best book you've ever been given as a gift? Uh, when I was 10, my stepfather, my, it was a recent stepfather, he had just got together with my mother, gave me the complete works of Shakespeare in Spanish. It was a, an edition by Aguilar. And it was a beautiful leather-bound book um, with very thin paper, Bible paper. And, um, of course, I was too young to understand much of, the, of, of the, what I was reading, but I was fascinated by the tragedies and much more than the comedies. And because they were so complicated with so many characters, I would make, draw them in each character, then cut them, and put a match behind to stand them up, and I could move them on the table to really visualize the, the scene, because otherwise I couldn't understand what was going on. And that way, I think I got familiarized with theater and with storytelling and tragedy and, and death and violence and jealousy and all those incredible things that... It's fascinating. So you actually brought it all to life. Because I know what you mean, that when you do have there's that much for your brain to keep track of, to be able to see it in front of yes. you. That's, what was your experience of the theatre at that point? Did you, had you seen things on stage? Did you know sort of no. this, or did you, was it just really instinctive? Well, I, I had never been in the theatre. And at the time, we very seldom went to the movies. So if I didn't draw the, the characters and have them move on the table, I couldn't visualize it, I couldn't see what was going on. Uh, and later, when I was able to see the theater for the first time, one of the, of, of the plays, I saw Julius Caesar in Lebanon in the ruins of Baalbek. And it, it was an incredible production because people would sit between the ruins, the, the stones and the fallen pillars and columns and and the actors would move around in a beautiful night with a full moon. That, that's one of the most striking memories of my life. That's such a powerful story. Does 
when you saw it, was it what you hoped you'd see or what you'd imagined or did it just go beyond anything that you thought it might be? Way beyond anything I had imagined. Um, it's totally different when you hear the different voices, when you see the when you see the characters, and you know the story because I knew the story, so that was great. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare play? Is that a hard question? It's a hard question because it depends. It, I think everybody loves Romeo and Juliet, but my favorite movie of all times is Shakespeare in Love, because that's the play within the play within the play, <laughs> and so you have several levels of mm. of Shakespeare in that movie, and I loved it. And I suppose that's so interesting as well because it's about it's almost a love letter to writing and creation too. Yes. yes. Which have you seen Little Women yet? Yes, I did. Loved it. And what I loved so much was it's about sisterhood and, you know, these women together. And I felt that those relationships are so well drawn, but also it's about the necessity of writing and the thrill of making it a a career, but also the vocation of it that you think Jo would write Mm -hmm. no matter what. And the way she defends her writing, mm. when she when she negotiates the contract with the publisher, yes. that's a great scene. Oh, that's thrilling! Yeah. <laughs> and the publisher says, "I'll give you five hundred more pounds if you uh, if I get the copyright." And she says, "No, thank you. I'll keep my copyright." <laughs> <laughs> it is such a power move. At what point did you start go from being an avid reader to a writer? When did you start having the urge to tell your own stories? I was a journalist for a while in my youth, and uh, I was always assigned the the more the, the crazier stories. So um, I could, I wouldn't say invent, but I could um, exaggerate, make it a make a story out mm. of it. And I think that was the beginning of my thrill of telling stories. But I didn't think I would ever be a writer. I, there were no no role models really except they were all male, Mm. the the writers of the boom of Latin America. And also, uh, I had to make a living, I had to support my kids, and as a writer, you seldom do. So it it wasn't until 1981, when I was living in exile in Venezuela, when I started writing a letter to my grandfather that turned into my first novel, The House of the Spirits. What was the process from sitting down and writing a letter to it turning into a book? I'm a, an avid letter writer. Um, my mother and I lived separated most of our lives, and we would write to each other every single day. So I'm used to, this, to, to writing letters. And um, I started a letter for my grandfather who was dying in Chile, and I couldn't go to Chile to bid him farewell. And I wanted to tell him that I remembered everything he had ever told me. He was a he, he he was full of family anecdotes, and I, my idea was, you can die in peace because I remember. I remember all those things that you told me about the family. So and you're to, saying that I will be the memory keeper, you will yeah. stay alive no matter what, because I've got this. Yeah, that was the idea. And I started um, with a story of my great, great aunt Rosa, who was my grandfather's first fiancée, and she died poison in mysterious circumstances. And Wait, that so was, she died of poison? Yes. Oh, gosh. And it was never clear what really happened. Um, it was like a mystery in the family. And so I knew the story because my grandfather had told me the story. And I st- started the, the letter saying, t- telling him, retelling him the story he had told me of Aunt, great-aunt Rosa. 
And that's how the book began. But after I had written two or three pages, I knew it wasn't a letter. And I somehow guessed that my grandfather would die without reading it. But it was like opening a door and all the characters, all the memories, all my family, those relatives that were long dead, all came rushing in. And I didn't have to think about it. The, the book wrote itself. Oh, so it was almost as though you were a witness to it. You were just there catching it all as it yes, travelled through you. Yes, I was just typing, typing, typing like crazy. <laughs> I wanted to ask about um, love stories and romance. I don't want to give any spoilers away for people who have yet to read A Long Paddle of the Sea, which I loved so much, but I'd love the idea that you can have so many different relationships of love with the same person. And there's, you know, it can be a sort of an intense romance or a companionship and that the way that feelings evolve and deepen over time. what are the love stories you, you carry with you? What makes you excited about romance or about togetherness? In all my books, love is a theme, like death and losses, um, justice. There, there are certain things that I keep repeating and repeating and looking for different angles. I am 77 years old and I have been in love all my life, with different men, of course. Uh, and... So I, I, I think that there are many kinds of love that, that one can explore in real life and in literature. And in this book, A Long Petal of the Sea, the love story is like the opposite of the usual love story. Mm. Usually uh, people fall in love passionately uh, and they get together and then in the best scenario, it evolves into a long friendship that ends up in a marriage of convenience because why are you going to divorce at 80? <laughs> and... Uh, In this case, it's the other way around. It's a marriage of convenience that goes through this very long and complicated relationship Mm. and ends up in a passionate love affair. And people ask me all the time, do you think that it's possible to be passionately in love at an old age? And of course it is. I I got married a few months ago. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So, So I know that it is possible. And the difference between falling in love Um, when you are young and when you are old is that when you are old, when you are my age, you have very little time, no time to waste. So you you try to make the best of it and let go of all the little things, Mm. the pettiness, the little games, the jealousy, the the intolerance, the impatience that that we all have. But there's no space, no time for that. Mm. I imagine it gives you a real sense of urgency. wanted to ask you about jealousy because that's something I love about how that comes about in Victor and Rose's relationship. And he's there being like, I have no real reason to be jealous. I can't legitimise these feelings of great jealousy. And yet, and I got a sense that that was when he started to understand how he was really feeling. How much do you think that's part of, of love and the love stories that you've read about the you know, that it's hard to escape, that love is a little bit possessive? Well, love is always possessive. Um, but I am not a jealous person. So for me, it's hard to, um, to to even imagine killing for jealousy, for example. For No. I really hope that's hard for a lot of people to <laughs> yeah. imagine going that far. Yeah. I, I have had many relationships, and I established 
the rules from the very beginning. And one of the rules I ask, is this going to be a monogamous relationship or not? Because once we establish the rules, we play by the rules. And every single time I'm told, yes, this is a monogamous relationship, and most of the time it isn't. So I get very frustrated when I, um, when I realize that, that I have been lied to. Um, but I do understand that in a lifetime, there are many people that you might love. Mm. And uh, sometimes you are married, and I, this has happened to me, to be married to a person that you love and respect, and yet you can have an affair because you fall in love with somebody else. And maybe if you are lucky, that doesn't interfere much with your marriage, but most of the time it does. Mm. If you could have, um, I mean, it's an awful question to ask a newlywed, but you can have an affair with anyone in literature right now, just a crazy week of passion and, um, and no one needs to know. My Who... dear, I'm too old for that question. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have a week of passion with anybody. Right, well, <laughs> or, you know, you can go back in time and, and do it, but it's not a real person. It's a, a fictional character. It's someone in a book. Sorrow. Zorro. Oh, great choice. Really great choice. Yeah, someone who fights for justice, young, athletic, handsome, and who wears a mask. So I, have, I wouldn't be even guilty of, because I wouldn't recognize him during the day. And then at night he climbs my balcony and we have passionate love. That is fabulous. And as you said, you are not wasting any time. Um, can you remember... Growing up and reading, any characters that you really responded to or, you know, sort of had crushes on or thought, oh, if only this person was real. I'm trying to think who is, who do we fancy in Shakespeare? Well, uh, I named my son after a character in a book. Um, I read uh, a, a series of books by Henri Troyat, a, a French writer who writes a lot. He's from Russian descent and he write, wrote a lot about the end of the Tsars and, and the, the revolution in Russia. And uh, he had one character who is a very young uh, servant, really, who is ordered by his master to take um, his wife, his young wife, out of the country, take her to France. And they have to cross the country in winter. And this young boy, who is, very, who is beautiful, and he's been in love always with her, and, of course, she's totally unattainable. And um, he gives his life for her. And he saves her and sacrifices his life to save her. He was called Nicholas. And I named my son Nicholas because of that character. Uh, he, he, was, he, he represented bravery and love, passion. He was so, so loyal. And I love that. A beautiful name and such a great Nicholas. tribute to the book. Yes. Remind me, sorry, what's that book called? Um, the, the the name in French. I have. I know, I know the name in French. I'm sorry. That's all right. I'm yeah. Sure <laughs> look it up and translate. Yeah. It. The, the author is Henri Troya. I can write it down. And the, um, and the name of the the series of books. I think it was a trilogy. Is called Tant que la Terre Durera. I'm sure we can. Yeah, the yeah, magic of Google. Oh, that's really kind. Thank you. 
I am captivated by how internationally you read. Do you think that's because as you've, your circumstances have been so global, I guess, that for various reasons you've found yourself living in, in all kinds of countries? Do you think it's important to read kind of across the world and be a, a global citizen of literature? I'm not very selective. Whatever you put in front of me, I will read. So it depends on where I am and whatever is available. Right now, I'm lucky because my publishers send me lots of books. And there is a bookstore close to my house called Book Passage, where I go every single day. I go in the morning to have my coffee there after I've walked the dogs. And they have for me often manuscripts or or books, uh, readers' copies. Uh, So I get to read fiction that is not even available yet. And that's wonderful. That is fabulous. Do you think that there are any local writers who know? <laughs> Just going to sneak in and give this to Isabel. Well, people do give me books. I, I don't read uh, manuscripts that people hand me because then I can be accused of plagiarizing or whatever. Um, and also because I don't have time. I have to research a lot for my books. Mm. So I read a lot that is nonfiction for research. What is the book that you wish you'd written? Harry Potter, of course. <laughs> Harry Potter. And because, we're in Bloomsbury HQ. So yeah, because, because it's, it, it got the children of the world to read. Boys um, to read. Have you read those books? Of Did course. you read them as, a, as an of adult? Of course, because when they came out, my grandchildren were little. So I would read the books with them. What do you think it is about Harry Potter that people love so much? I was thinking about something you said earlier about um, courage and about um, Nicholas. I'm not doing justice to that pronunciation. But how the books I love the most are, I think, where the characters are really courageous, but that there's no courage without fear, that it's all about... Overcoming. Yeah, doing something you never dreamed that you could do or doing it because you can't not, even though you're terrified. I think that comes up a lot in Harry Potter. Yes, it comes and in, all, in all good young adult books and children's books. And it used to be that in the fairy tales, uh, courage, uh, the, the journey of the hero was always a male. Mm. And, and the females were like the prize at the end of the road, or they were passive, and they were to be rescued. Mm. But that has changed a lot. You don't find that anymore in young adult books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. We'll be back to Isabel soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so jewel-like that Elton John would wear it as a hat, but only on very special occasions. This week, it's Neon Angel, a memoir of a runaway by Sherry Curry. This is a shocking, messy, challenging and utterly compelling account of Sherry's experience of being 15 years old, front and centre in The Runaways. There are heartbreaking accounts of the way that she and her bandmates were abused and exploited, but the book has a thrilling feminist energy at its heart. Also, the anecdotes are amazing. My favourite story is the one where Rod Stewart becomes almost tearful when he's offered cocaine by the band members because he's so touched by their generosity. Neon Angel is published by HarperCollins and out now. Now, back to Isabel. Is there anything that you read that had the first heroine that you felt very excited to meet? Or the first time you read a book that sort of had women really at its heart? Or that you read recently that you feel does a, a good job of celebrating women? Well, all the, all the books today celebrate women and I read a lot of books uh, written by women. Uh, it, it would be very hard to find today a heroine that is not courageous and, and, and brave and does mm. things that, that are extraordinary. Why would you write about someone who doesn't do something extraordinary? People send me their, uh, love, their, their life stories and they want me to write it. And everybody thinks that their life is extraordinary, mm. which is wonderful. I think it's wonderful to feel that mm. way. But the real heroines, the real extraordinary people that I meet are through my foundation. I have a foundation that, wor that works. We invest in the power of women and girls. And we have programs in Africa, in Asia, and now in the border with the United States and Mexico, where there is a whole camp of a refugee camp yeah. there. And the situation is subhuman. Mm. And there, I, and in other places, I find these women who have extraordinary life who had gone through trauma. They have lost everything. Sometimes they have lost their children. And yet they get back on their feet and they keep fighting and they keep living. And those are the stories I want to tell. But that's the thing, isn't it? That if you're really in the throes of something that's, you know, challenging and heartbreaking and horrible, yeah, you know, you, you live it, don't you? You're not thinking about how can I present this? How can I, no. how can I make it into a story? And, and often you don't have an alternative. What are you going to do? Jump on, on, into the river? You have children. You have to keep living. And we don't know how strong we are until we are tested. Mm. That's so true. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the foundation does? Is it sort of training women? And When my daughter died, Paula died, I wrote a book called Paula, a memoir. And the income that came from that book, I set aside on another account because I wanted to do something to honor my daughter. And this was in, 90, in the 90s, in the early 90s. Uh, so I created this foundation, but when my daughter-in-law took over, she now runs the foundation, she gave it a, a focus, a mission. And the mission, as I said, is to invest in women. And we'd, we used to have like a hundred different uh, programs that we supported. But when Trump was elected in the United States, we had to narrow our focus to what, is the, the, what are the most 
relevant issues today. One of them is reproductive rights, which have been threatened in the United States everywhere. The other thing is um, protection against exploitation and trafficking, abuse. And the other thing that we do now is uh, try to help migrant women and children. You're so right that in these this political era, there's a lot to do and it's it's urgent. Are there any writers that you think are other than yourself, obviously, um, producing that sort of the work that needs to be written in these terrifying times? Who do you think is sort of capturing the the era best? Or do you think it's very hard to know that? We'll have to sort of look back and figure it out. Well, there are many uh, Latino writers in the United States writing about the situation with, with the immigrants. Um, right now, there's a huge controversy about American Dirt mm. uh, because it's a book that is about that, but written by a white woman. And what people are saying is that that why would a white person write about the Mexican experience? Well, why not? Why not? Can't why can't a fiction writer become the other mm. and, and have empathy for the other and write the st- a story that? It's maybe not personal, but you can empathize with. Uh, and there are many reasons why the book has been so criticized. I haven't read it, so I cannot judge the book. But there are many Latino writers that are writing about that mm. right now. I find it really, really complicated because I agree with you that I think if you're a storyteller and a story comes to you, then it must be told and it would be very very sad if people can't write outside their own experiences yes. that's the the joy of this work but also i know there are so many non-white voices that don't get heard as they deserve to be heard exactly. they don't get the attention that they deserve um but it's tricky isn't it? i mean i think it's a publishing problem no and i think it's perhaps it startles me that lots of this criticism is sort of levelled at, at the writer and not the people who are responsible for bringing this book out into the world when they could have been supporting other writers who don't have those advantages. Yes, they could support everybody. They could support the other writers as much as they supported this book. But it's true, the publisher created a, um, a huge publicity campaign and gave a very big advance to, to this writer in particular, why other Latino writers who have written the same experience mm. and maybe better, I don't know, don't get that attention at all. We could do now, though, is if you have got any um, writers, either contemporary writers or past writers from South America that you'd like to celebrate and talk about, um, let's talk about these writers who perhaps our listeners might have yet to discover. Um, you know, it's interesting. That we we had the boom of Latin American writers in the 60s, 70s, and part of the mm. 80s, which was an all-male phenomena, you know. Mm. And they wrote extraordinary books. And then th- that the interest for Latin America was shifted to the Middle East, to Africa, to other places. Mm. And Latin American literature isn't receiving the attention that it did before. Uh, but there's there's a new generation of writers that are um, writing different books, more urban, more influenced by media, by more visual. Um, it's it's an interesting new wave of writers, less politicized mm. as they were in the 80s. And I read also some Spanish writers. 
right now I'm reading all of an Irish writer, Colum McCann, because I'm going to introduce him in an event. And this is an example of a writer who is Irish, who wrote a book that you probably have read, uh, Let the Great World Spin. Oh, I haven't read that, but I will. Yeah, in which he talks in the voices of an African-American prostitute under a bridge, a homeless person. Um, the the uh, Philippe Petit, the guy who crossed between the two towers on a tightrope, um, he, he can be the policeman, he can be anybody from any race, from any color. And if we apply this norm that you can only write about, about your tribe, mm. then this man couldn't write this wonderful box. It's the latest book that I'm reading right now by him mm. uh, is called A Peregon, which, which is a strange title. And it is the story of two men, one Palestinian and one Israeli. And they both have lost their children in the war. And so they connect as combatants for peace. And he tells the story in a sort of collage of, mm. of scenes and images. And you realize that they, they are enemies geographically, mm. but emotionally they are the same. Two fathers in sorrow. I think that's the only way that any of us can deal with living in this world that is so full of conflict and violence, is to really look for the humanity beneath it and you know when you, th you hear the news and you hear what's happening but then you think that this is affecting hundreds and thousands of millions of people in very 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 different ways and I suppose that's what's that's what's fascinating and that's how we keep going is to find you know where is that compassion and how are people connecting still in spite of everything. Yeah, what, what I keep saying is that for example there's all this anti-immigrant rhetoric this narrative in Europe and in the United States against immigrants, and they are like the scapegoats for everything that's wrong in the society. When you learn the name of the person, you hear the story, you have a face, then everything changes. They are not statistics, they are not numbers, and then you know why they are coming to the border. They are running away for their lives. Mm. And uh, in a way, that's what um, Colin McCann does with this book in which he presents both sides of the same conflict. And in my book, A Long Battle of the Sea, I, I talk about refugees, 2,000 refugees mm. that leave the civil war in Spain and are brought to Chile by the poet Pablo Neruda. And for me, it was just the story of a ship that brought 2,000 people to Chile until I started reading the list of the names. And then I realized I knew several of them. When I heard That's the story... family names? Or? Yes, the family names. And then when I heard the story from one of the passengers of the Winnipeg who told me his personal story, then everything changed. Then it's not just 2,000 people. It's, it's 2,000 stories. And I know them. And that is fantastic. What I think you do so well in that book and the way all of these different family relationships sort of work together and you have the people who understand the fear and the urgency and that these people are fleeing for their lives and then the people who seem to initially get it and they're like, well, you know, we're, we're fine and we're not going to, you know, do as much as we can to help. And I think that was quite uncomfortable and unsettling but you know it, it's That's true as well it that it's yeah. how it is that you know well compassion is stirred in some people but then it, you know other people will will wriggle out of it 
Um, I wanted to talk as well about having Pablo Neruda as a, a character. Did you sort of fictionalise him at all or did you try to avoid doing that? I did not have to fictionalise him because <laughs> it was there. The, the whole story is whole, like an apple. Um, Pablo Neruda, who was at the time a politician in Chile, he was only 34 years old, but he was already a worldwide known poet. Um, he had many friends in Spain, and during the Civil War, many of his friends died. Um, others went into exile. And Pablo Neruda convinced the president of Chile to receive some migrants from am among those refugees. And so he was sent to Paris with the mission of bringing them to Chile, but they didn't give him any money. So he had to fundraise. He, he bought a dilapidated cargo ship, conditioned it to transport the 2,000 passengers, more than 2,000. Because it, I can't remember, but the capacity for that, it was sort of as a, you know, a, not exactly a pleasure cruiser, but it was only supposed to take like a fraction of that, wasn't it? That it oh, went from absolutely. taking, was it, it wasn't 60 people or something, was it? Yeah, to... yeah, it was a cargo ship with, mm. a, with a crew of 25 people. But yes. And then they, they had to condition it uh, to transport to, with 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 bed, bed banks and mm. to transport all these people, and then he had to select the people and send them to Chile. So the whole odyssey of the Winnipeg and those two thousand two hundred people would not be possible without Pablo Neruda. So I I didn't have to make that up. Uh, Pablo Neruda in his memoirs says at, in one paragraph he says that maybe all my poetry will be forgotten, but the poem of the Winnipeg will be remembered. And he's right. I mean, the, 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 those people and their descendants changed Chile. Mm. They enriched the society immensely. And I love that you make that point in the book, that it's so important to keep art alive. And I think, you know, there's, especially now, it's not an extra, it's not a frill. It's as necessary as anything to have those creative spirits I think that art interprets the collective consciousness. And uh, we don't know why we are attracted to a, a photography or, 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 or a painting or something because it interprets something of its time. Look how many millions of photographs were taken during the Vietnam War, mm. let's say. But what represents the Vietnam War for many people is that photograph of that little girl that is running naked and there's napalm burning behind her. And that, that, that image sort of summarizes the war. And when some, some work of art does that, it's immortal. Mm. Do you reread books ever? It sounds like you read sort of so much and, you know, you get through so much. Are there any books or stories that you return to and get different things from over time? No, I only go back to poetry and for a very practical reason. I live in English and I write in Spanish. So, and I start all my books on January 8th. So like a week before that, I start reading poetry in Spanish so I can get back the vocabulary, the imagery, the rhythm of the language, the flow of the language, which is totally different from English. And that helps me when I get to when I get to write. Which poets do you read? Mostly Pablo Neruda, but I read other poets too. So did you want to write this at all as a, a tribute to him or a way of acknowledging the role that he plays in your writing? Well, 
I have used poems by Neruda uh, in several of my books. But in this case, I see it, every chapter starts with a poem. Yes. And it, as you said, it's a tribute to him because the whole thing would have not happened without him. I love that he continues to speak through you. And I think, you know, lots of creative people in, in lots of ways. And I think that's something I really took from The Long Petal of the Sea, that this idea of creative legacy. And, you know, you talked about your grandfather and stories that he told you living through, and then those stories being from other generations. Um, do you have any any dream readers? Are there any people that you would love to go and sort of, you know, continue to write and create and be inspired by the books that you've written? You know, when I face an audience, uh, which I do often, because I, I travel and I do readings and lecture, um, most of my my audience is women, all ages, and some young men. I don't get older men. Older men don't read my books, I think, and um, there's nothing I can do about it, just wait until they die off or something. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel yeah. that way. <laughs> but um, the fact that my books are taught at university or in high schools uh, means that there's a young male generation mm. that the poor guys are forced to read me. And some of them remain my readers. So for me, it's important to um, reach young people because the world belongs to them. They are going to make the changes that are needed, and I trust they will. So if I can reach them and tell them what my life experience has been and what the things I believe in, believe in well, that would be wonderful. It's so true, having that a creative legacy of young readers and young writers. Um, I mean, I don't think that you can be a writer unless you're a reader first. Would you agree with that, or do you think that they're not necessarily as linked as that? I don't know, but I think that you learn from what you read, and you get familiarized with the written word. So, it, it, of course, it helps a lot. I suppose there are people who are so smart that they can write without being good readers, but no, it's not my case. I read a lot, and I've always read a lot since I was a child. If we were in California now and we were, because normally we record this yes. um, sort of beside our guest bookshelves, so, you know, I'm going through your front door, what's the first book that I find? Well, you would find very few books in my house because on January 7th, and that's the day before I start writing, I give away all the books that I've bought during the year. Uh, I, I live in a very small house. I used to live in a large house with books all over and many other objects and, and things and furniture and rugs and whatever. And then when I divorced from my, from my husband, I gave away everything, sold the house, and decided to live in a very small environment that I could feel that was like an egg, that I was inside an egg. <laughs> and I bought a little house uh, close to the water, so it's, it's, it's very nice, but it's very small. And... I have very few things, so I can't tell you how liberating that was to give away even the books, because I come from a tradition that you never give away a book. Mm. You steal books from you. You borrow books and you don't give them back, but you <laughs> never ever get rid of a book. 
So getting rid of the box was like getting rid of pets. I mean, just horrible. But once it was done, I realized that I have access to any book I want to, to read again, in case I want to read something again. And there are so many other books that I want to read that I not, don't need to possess them, to have them. So um, I have, the, as soon as you go into my house on a table that is behind the couch, you will see a large book by Pablo Neruda with beautiful paintings that it was a gift from him to me, and that I didn't give away. Oh, that, what an incredible book to own. How beautiful. Yes, a beautiful dedication with green ink. He always wrote with green ink. So that's the one, um, you know, in case of emergency, that's what's coming out of the house with you. In case of emergency, I rescue the dogs first. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It's very practical. Um, Do you have any favourite? How do you feel about um, animals and books? I'm trying to remember if there are any in A Long Petal in the Sea. but I always have animals in my books. Always. Mostly dogs. And in a long petal of the sea, the grandmother has a little white dog that she carries around. Oh my goodness! Yes. Yeah, and when they're, you know, and 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 she gets lost in there. Oh, it's it's hard. But yeah. I, I won't say any more because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's yet to read it. But it did. Um, I was um, I read it when I was on vacation, yeah. and there was a little bit of um sobbing on the sun lounger. Yeah. <laughs> I was concerned. Yeah. Um, other dogs and books. Are there any authors who you think? Are very good at animals or any any dogs that have really come to life for you? I don't know, but in my books, I, I wrote a book t- some time ago, my only crime novel. I have, I'm not a crime novelist. And the, it's called Ripper. And uh, I have a character that is a Navy SEAL, a soldier, an amputee, and he has a war dog that has been traumatized because a bomb exploded and made him deaf and all wounded. And so the, the dog is called Attila. And I have my Navy seal with his dog. And of course, I love the dog. And then at the end of the book, there's a horrible scene in which a woman has been crucified. I mean, I don't know how I came up with something so cruel. And somebody has to die. And I had to choose between the Navy seal and the dog. Whom would you have chosen? <laughs> I do know that um, other authors we've spoken to have said in terms of their reader reviews, you can get away with killing off, you know, beloved old sort of grandparents and heroes and everything. But if um, any pets don't make it to the end of the book, people get very upset about that. Well, I got a lot of people saying that, why did you kill the Navy SEAL? Well, I couldn't kill the dog. I just couldn't. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious about your process. So you, you write, you start the same... The same day. The same day and every year. And January the 8th, did you yeah. say? Every year now, when it's January the 8th, I think, oh, Isabella's writing. Yeah, well, I don't start a book every January 8th because maybe I haven't finished the one from the previous year. But if I have a book in mind, I wait until January 8th to get started. And there's a reason. Superstition practically is one of the reasons, but... The practical reason is that I have a very complicated life. So I need to set aside several months a year of silence and solitude to write. And having a day to start means that everybody around me knows Mm. that I'm not available for several months. And does that include the research as well? Are you actually writing the story then or will there be time of sort of, you know, reading around and making notes and finding where the story is? 
usually before I start, I have a sense of a time and a place that I have researched. And that gives me uh, enough material to get started. But I don't know who the characters are or what will happen to them. So I don't know the story yet. And in the process of writing, I, I need to fill in the research more and more. But now it's easy. With, with Google, you can research everything. <laughs> And are you quite focused? You don't because the um, I think it was uh, the comedy writer Arthur Matthews said the trouble is now with computers the typewriter is attached to the everything machine. Are you quite focused, or do you have to sort of have a battle between your book and the distractions of Google? No, no, no. I'm very focused. I I I just want certain information and I focus on that. I don't get distracted with all the offerings of shoes and clothes and stuff, none of that. Am I right in thinking you've not written a book about writing, have you? Is that something you'd ever consider doing? I think lots of people would love to know how you focus. (laughs) How I focus? Um, No, I've never thought about writing about writing. Who would be interested? I would, for sure. I think lots of people (laughs) would. Well, because this is your job, but most people don't. They're not interested. Well, Anne Lamott lives near you. Yes, yes. She wrote she's an amazing wonderful. book about writing. Yes, Bird by Bird. Mm, yes. Fantastic. I've just discovered Anne Lamott's writing. and She's in, a lovely person. Do you know her? No, no, I would love to. I've become, you know, when you discover a writer yes. and then it's almost like a crazy food binge or something and you become obsessed and need everything. Well, so. She's exactly like the books. She is totally reflected by her writing and a lovely person. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And what I love so much about reading her is the way certain sort of friends and people will keep popping up, as well as her writing about her family a lot. You notice sort of different friends are, are visiting. And I was, I think when you were talking about your daughter and the foundation, I was thinking about how she writes about grief and something that's quite violent and complicated and jarring and just, you know, won't leave you alone. And... Um, how how comforting I find her agitation, I guess, if that makes sense, that it's okay to feel wild within it. It's so easy to identify with Anne Lamotte because we are we are all like her in a little a little bit. We she's she's frail in many ways, very vulnerable, mm. very open. She gets hurt easily. And all that is reflected in her books. And I think that we all can feel that it's part of our lives as well. And I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I feel that magic realism in her too, that she is very open to a universe that does not operate necessarily always on logic. She's very religious, and mm. uh, but in a good way. She's not fanatic about mm. religion, but she's very spiritual. And so that's part of what, who she is and what she writes about. It's funny, I was raised in a very strict Catholic family and for a long time I was just like, nope, nope, not having any of it. I'm here and that's it. And, I got, and actually reading Anne Lamotte has brought me back a little bit to that spirituality and made me a bit more open to it. Was Catholicism around much for you? I was raised Catholic. Uh, I come from a very conservative, Catholic, patriarchal mm. family and society at the time. Uh, but I walked away from the Catholic Church when I was around 15, never went back. And I uh, I have no sympathy for any religion. I think that they are all created by men mm. to give them power over the over other people, and especially over especially women. women. And so that I'm not interested in that. And uh, However, uh, I have met 
priests and nuns, Catholic priests and nuns, especially during the time of the dictatorship in Chile, that risked their lives to help other people. And I, I have great admiration and affection for them. And now I live in Marin County, where a couple of my very good friends are nuns, American nuns, Dominican nuns, completely against the Pope and against the rules of the church, and they don't wear a habit, and they are fantastic. I love them. I guess that's what a vocation is, isn't it? To be, yeah. to have compassion at your core and just to want to help. And then there, and as always, whenever there's a system, there are people who are going to exploit the system. There's especially religion. There's a part in a long petal of the sea where Victor does something, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but it's. I think it's one of the most courageous and unexpected. Thing. And again, it, it moved me to tears when he helps something. Oh, sorry, helps someone. Um, who has hurt him because he feels it is his duty. And I think that's such a powerful moment. And almost, I think there's some spirituality to it or something, or perhaps just pure humanity. Well, he was a doctor. Mm. Uh, The character of Victor Dalmau is based on two people that I knew. One of them was a passenger of the Winnipeg, and the other one was also a man whom I met in exile in Venezuela. He was a doctor. And that happened to him. So that story of helping your torturer happened to him. And he, he never doubted when the, the, the moment came when his torturer had a heart attack. He never doubted that, that he had to help. Because first of all, he was a doctor. And that was his calling. I love how I've been quite, I think, protective of your book. And I want people to kind of come to it new and know what happens. And you're very, you're very free with the... Um... Well, because people forget. I mean, yes. you can talk about anything and in two minutes people will have forgotten. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> have you ever picked up a book and felt that you were coming to it newly and then sort of got into it and thought, oh, now I have read this? Yes, yes. It happens to me a lot, especially because I have heard it on, on audio and then I pick up the book, and in, on page 40, why the story seems so familiar? I already <laughs> heard it. Yes, it happens a lot. And there are many books that I begin and I don't finish. I, I give myself 60 pages as, as, a, as the time when I get into a book or not. And if I don't get into it, I just drop it. I don't feel obliged to read anything. There's too much there out there that I want to read. We heard a good rule, and it's, I think, Nancy Pearl, who's a librarian. Um, yes, I gosh. hope she is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember who it was. I think it was um, the writer Amor Tolls who shared this, that apparently the rule, it's 100 pages minus your age, and that's how much <laughs> of the book. So if you're only 18, you've yeah. got to read 82 pages before you can. Oh, give that's up. So I think 60 is quite a, a that's commitment. very good. Yes, I read... 30, 60 pages, and if I'm not into the book, okay, it's done. Done. Huge thanks to Isabel. A Long Petal of the Sea, published by Bloomsbury, is out now, and it's dazzling. Read it, you will never forget it. And do follow Isabel on social media, at Isabel Allende. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow paperback chasers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about.
If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I'll leave you with this from Julie Cooper. People who can write a book usually do. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.